0: Amen. Thank you, Ron. Uh, good morning. Uh, thank you for braving the cold weather. Uh, the, I heard somebody on the news say the coldest 36-hour span in Florida, in this part of Florida, in the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, so it's encouraging to see so many of you here this morning. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. If you've not been with us, we're in the middle of a series uh, from, the, from the book or the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, today we'll be looking at a passage in Matthew chapter 3. Uh, really, picking up where we left off a couple of weeks ago with the coming of John the Baptist, but specifically looking at the the, the part of this passage that deals with Jesus' baptism. So Jesus comes to meet John the Baptist at the Jordan River to be baptized. And we're, but we're going to go back to the beginning of the chapter and pick up the beginning of verse 1 and read all the way through verse 17. So if you have a um, Bible with you, you can turn to Matthew 3. If not, it's going to be printed on the screen behind me. There it is. And... It's also printed for you in your worship folder, and you even there are even pew Bibles in front of you if you'd like to look at a Bible, although that's a little bit different version than what we're going to come out of, but that will be clear enough if you desire to do that. So let's read together this morning Matthew 3, 1 through 17. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said Of the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. I'm surprised somebody hasn't come up with the John the Baptist diet yet, you know. Everything else is out there. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you. With water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. with whom I'm well pleased. This is God's word. Um, a couple of housekeeping things about this passage, things we need to clear up before we get into the kind of the nitty gritty of the text. I don't know how familiar you would be with the, with the scripture, but if, if you are, then you know that there is a familial relationship that exists between Jesus and John the Baptist. John's mother was Elizabeth. Elizabeth was Mary's cousin. Now, exactly what that word means, we're not really sure. It probably doesn't mean the same thing, or it's not, you know, exactly the same as what we mean by cousin today. Um, So in our terminology, John and Jesus would have been second cousins. But again, there's some kind of fuzziness about exactly what that is. We can say they 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 were family. They were from the same clan. There was a familial tie between these two. Uh, now, think about this. Jesus, at this time, lived in Nazareth, which was, most scholars say, something like 75 miles away from where John is baptizing at the Jordan River. So news had reached, and, and Nazareth was known to be an out-of-the-way place, kind of insignificant on the periphery of the, of the nation. So news of what John was doing had reached, even to the uttermost, you know, outreaches of the nation of Israel, to even a city like Nazareth. And people were coming, Jesus and his whole family Made the 75 mile trek to come to the river to be where John is to be baptized by him. So there's, whatever we can say, there is some significance to what's happening here that Jesus would, would take probably three or four days walking to get there, uh, to be a part of this and to be baptized by John. And then I want to say one more thing just by clarity as we move into the text, and that is that when we talk about the baptism that Jesus undergoes here, I want you to see that there is a difference between John's baptism and what we would call Christian baptism. This is something unique to this time within the unfolding drama of God's salvation. Baptism was seen here, uh, as it was in that day, as an initiatory rite, even in the mystery religions of the day. Things like Gnosticism, people were baptized as a part of being initiated into a certain movement or into a certain sect or into a certain group and so it was even part of the Essene community which John may or may not have been a part of and we're not really sure but in whatever case John is baptizing people to to initiate them or to bring them into the movement of the coming of the kingdom of God and that's something very different so don't equate What's going on here with what we do when we baptize people in Christian baptism in the church is something completely different. And I just wanted to kind of frame all of that for you as we come to this text. And as we come, I want us to look at three things when we talk about this baptism and just kind of work through them together. The first is I want to ask the question, uh, why is John there? You see, Jesus and John have been on a collision course throughout their whole life. They've been on a collision course, and now they meet Presumably for the first time in their official capacity. So let's ask the question, why is John there? Secondly, why is Jesus there? So why is John there? Why is Jesus there? And then thirdly, what happens as Jesus is baptized? And why is it important for you and me? So why is John there? Why is Jesus there? What happens? And, and then just finish up by, by asking why it's important, okay? So let's just start right here. Why is John There, you'll see this corresponding to point number one in your outline, the kingdom and repentance. Uh, John is a prophet like the Old Testament prophets, and the Old Testament prophets believed that there would come a decisive day when God would come to his people to save them, to bless them, and to judge and punish their enemies. The prophets talk about the day of the Lord, that God would come to rule, that he would initiate a whole new world in his coming where Justice and righteousness would be a way of life, not only for his people, but for all the nations of the earth. And you look around in our world today, right? You look around at our city, you look around at your neighborhood, and there are so many ways that you can see that evil still reigns. Hard hearts and broken relationships and poverty, all of these things. And you look at all of that, and it really, if you're like me, it takes an act of faith to look at that and say God is in control. Because there seems to be still so much in our world in our lives that is wrong and that that is not the way that it should be and yet the promise of the kingdom is that one day a king would come that god himself would visit us and that he would take over and it would be a new day and john's message is if you look there in verse 2 repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand he's saying it's about to happen the old testament also taught that prior to god's coming there would be a herald that was sent before him to announce his coming, to, to get things ready for him. And that's what we understand John's job to be. John shows up and starts preaching, the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming. The king is coming. And it's just kind of fun, You know, get ready, prepare, make his way straight. The king is coming. And I just began to think, you know, now if the king is coming, what do you do? And I thought it funny to just ask, ladies, if your mother-in-law is coming for a visit, what do you do? Right? Or here's a fun one to think about. If the pastor is coming over for dinner, what do you do? Right? You you round up all the bibles in the house and dust them off and put them out so he can see them and think you're super spiritual. <laughs> right? But what if the king is coming? I now mean, you get ready, right? You prepare you know, But if the king is coming, what do you do? You get ready. You prepare. John says, you make his path straight. Verse 3. Matthew three, 3. You make his path straight. And from Isaiah, he's quoting. Isaiah goes on to say, every valley needs to be lifted up. And every mountain needs to be brought low. And all of the uneven ground and the places that are kind of bumpy need to be leveled out. And the rough roads need to be smoothed out. That's what you do when the king is coming. You make his way straight. You prepare for him. You, you get every obstacle out of the way. I I have a great illustration of what this looks like. Uh, two years ago, Jonathan took me to Uganda. We're taking a team there in two weeks. So pray for our team that's going to Uganda in two weeks. But two years ago, we went to Uganda for ten days, and we were it, we were in Mbale District, which is about a four hour drive outside of Kampala, the capital. And there's no real good way to get there. The roads are dirt and bumpy and full of potholes, and it's terrible. And um, uh, so we were leaving to come to, you know, to leave, to get home. And by the time I've been away from my family for 10 days, I mean, I would, you know, just about do anything to not miss connection flights to get home. You with me? And I get really nervous. My mom schooled me, you know, if you had an eight o'clock flight, you needed to be at the airport at five, right? Cause you never know what might happen. I mean, and so we're driving and we're on a tight schedule already and I'm just getting kind of nervous and we get to this place in the road. Where we just stop. And if you've done any international travel, you know this is not out of the ordinary. And we waited. And we waited. Thirty minutes. One hour. Two hours. I'm freaking out. Right we're gonna miss our plane. Two and a half hours. You know, we're by this time around what is going on? And what we figured out is they were in the middle of a construction project and I mean can can I get an Amen? I mean Construction here in the states takes forever if they don't finish Overlook drive pretty quick I am going to harass somebody. Are you with me? I mean construction you think it takes a long time here can you imagine in a, in a you know in a, in a third world country what that looks like and we figured out what they were doing is they were they were doing this massive construction project and instead of you know scheduling at five o'clock in the morning they you know hey sorry we're doing a construction project you've got to hang out and, and and we I was so upset and we got out and we started talking and some guys we were like, What is going on? I mean all of a sudden you're concerned that the roads be nice? I mean, seriously, we've driven around here for ten days. And what we found out is the Queen was coming. I mean the Queen of England was coming for a visit and because the queen was coming they were they were undergoing this massive expansion where they're actually paving the roads that she was going to drive on because when when she came she didn't want them they didn't want her to be impeded by any you know any bad roads or anything so they were they were paving these roads and making them beautiful because the queen was coming you see that's what you do that's how you prepare for the king's visit you make his way straight you get rid of every obstacle you 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 sweep every corner. You inspect every nook and cranny because your mother-in-law is coming over because you want nothing to impede His coming and you want everything to be just the way He wants it to be. So John has come to help the people make His way straight by calling them, look there in verse 3, to repentance. Verse 2, excuse me, repent. Here's how you prepare, you repent. John says in verse 8, "...bear fruit in keeping with repentance." And what does that mean? What John wants us to see is we've been created in God's image to mediate his rule and his reign in the earth. But sin and selfishness have distorted our lives and made all kinds of incongruity in our lives. That our lives are not congruous with God's plan and his purposes. There are all kinds of ways that our lives are, have gotten out of whack and become distorted. And John is saying repentance is bringing your whole life back in line with God and his purposes in Jesus. Repentance means to rethink your entire life in light of who Jesus is and what he's come to do and to make the necessary change. He's the king. And he comes with a brand new agenda, a brand new set of priorities and values. And the call to repent is to bring our whole lives into alignment with his purposes and his priorities. And the kingdom agenda is just this. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And the call to repent is to think out the implications of the commands of loving God and loving one another and to find the barriers to those things and to get rid of them, to sweep them away, to think through how you use your time and your talents and your treasures and to think of all of the practices and the ways that you do that that don't allow you to love, that in fact cause you to be indifferent and to hate and to say, no, I'm going I'm to rid myself of those things. I'm going to bring my life back in keeping with the agenda of Jesus's coming kingdom is repent. And here's why. Here's why you have to repent, because you see, when the king comes, look at verse seven. When he comes, he comes both to save and to judge. And if you look there, at John's warning to the religious leaders in verse seven, he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? See, the king, when he comes, he brings judgment. Verse 10, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire He's warning them that if they do not change, if they do not repent and believe in Jesus who is coming, if they do not bring all of their life in alignment with God's purposes and His priorities in Jesus, they would be like chaff that is left after the harvesting of the grain that is burned up. I mean, repentance is literally life and death. Now, we're going to quote the Apostles' Creed together in just a few minutes. And in the Apostles' Creed... We confess our belief that Jesus is coming again one day, and He's coming to judge the living and the dead. We believe that He will come and make all things new, and there will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more death. Amen? I mean, we believe that. But in order to do that, He has to judge sin and put down evil. You see that? In order to set up that kingdom, He has to come against evil. He has to overthrow everything that is set against Him. And if you're here and you're not a Christian or you've bought into a Christianity that is absent of a call to continual, ongoing repentance, then when He comes, He will not be friendly to you. He comes to save. But in order to save, you must also judge. And the judgment against sin on that day, let me just warn you, it will be more frightening than anything I can even try to describe to you. You see, those that came to John were those that were sensible of their sin and came to be baptized in order to flee from the wrath that was coming, to find forgiveness for their sins through the work of Jesus and to ready themselves to live as loyal subjects to him, bringing all of their lives in line with his agenda and mission. See, that's why John's there. John's there to get the people ready, to call them to repentance. But let's ask that second question. If that's why John's there, then why is Jesus there? Why is Jesus there? And this is really... The hard part about this passage, because it's a matter of great debate, the people John is baptizing have come to confess their sins and seek forgiveness. But Jesus is sinless. We've seen this, right? He has no sin. I mean, Jesus has no need of repentance. And that's probably why in verse 14, John objects. John says, no, this is all wrong. You should be baptizing me. I don't need to be baptizing you. So what is Matthew trying to teach us? What is it that we What is it that we learn here? Why is Jesus there? What principle would he have us learn? And I really think it's this, that that even our repentance is not enough. That even as John calls us to repentance, it's not enough. That no amount of religious fervor or devotion can bring the kingdom of God. That our obedience, no matter how thorough or sincere it might be, it's incomplete. Our repentance, no matter how heartfelt, is not enough. We need to stand in. We need somebody who will be obedient for us. And that's exactly what Jesus has come to do. Matthew Henry um, has a prayer in a Puritan book of prayers called the Valley of Vision. And it's called Continual Repentance. And he has a line in that prayer where he says um, that our hearts are so warped that even our penitential tears need to be washed. And he says, and even I even need to repent of my repentance. What does he mean? Matthew Henry understands something. He sees that sin is so pervasive that it taints even our best efforts at moral reform. That our penitential tears, even those need to be washed because they're full of impure and sinful motivations. That even when we confess our sins and do good deeds, it is from a heart that is full of selfishness. That we, in a very real way, we need a righteousness that is beyond our ability to fulfill. And that's exactly why Jesus has come. And it's why he's here at the Jordan River being baptized by John. Look at verse 15. And see how, see how Jesus responds to John's objection? I need to be baptized by you. You don't need to be baptized by me. And Jesus says, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. See, that's why he's there, to fulfill all righteousness. Pasan de All All righteousness. Righteousness in every way, in every act, in even the smallest, most mundane, most insignificant moments. Jesus was perfectly obedient to the Father's will. He came to offer an obedience we are not capable of but desperately need. He came and he identified himself with sinners. And the Scripture says he was tempted in every way that we are yet was without sin. And that's why he's our Savior. The holiness of God demands Of us, a righteousness that we are not capable of rendering in our own power. Jesus came to fulfill righteousness for us. He came to be our stand-in. We talked about the passive and active obedience of Jesus. He came not just to die upon upon the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven. He came to live in perfect obedience to the Father's will. So that not only can we be forgiven of our sins, we can be righteous in Him. He's passive in His active obedience. He came to fulfill all righteousness. So that's why he's there. Now, let's finish up by looking at what happens, because here's really the meat and potatoes of this passage. Look what happens. There's three things we're told there, beginning in verse 16. And when he was baptized, number one, heaven opens. Number two, in other words, God's breaking through. God's coming near. He's about to reveal himself. Number two, the Spirit comes down and rests upon him. And then number three, and this is where I really want to land, there's a verdict that comes. A voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. The father sees the obedience of Jesus and then a voice from heaven says, this is my son that I love. I'm well pleased with him. And this is the really important part of the passage for Matthew. And here's how I know. Look at verse 17. He starts that there in verse 17 with behold. And if you go back up in verse 16, behold, he says two times, behold, look at this. Pay attention to this. This is the really important stuff. A voice from heaven. And there are really two things going on here. The first is, this is a very powerful theological argument for Matthew that Jesus is the Son. He's the true Israel. He's the one who's come who will finally do what, what Israel should have done all along. He's the Son of God who's come to render the obedience that God demands. But there's also a very powerful, and if you forgive, forgive the very... Big word, a very powerful existential reality that's, that's happening here. And if you read the Gospels carefully, you'll see that Jesus' obedience always, always is rooted in and sourced out of his confidence in his Father's love. In other words, Jesus' obedience, his, his energy for obedience came from, it, was, it, it flowed out of his awareness and his confidence in his Father's delight in him and his delight in the Father. So, for example, one of my favorite passages about this is in in John chapter 5. And in John chapter 5, Jesus looks at the disciples and the crowds around him. and, And here's what he has to say to them. He says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. You don't have the love of God within you. So how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? You see, what he's saying is the difference between Jesus and the rest of us is that he had the love of God within him. He was so confident, he was so assured of the Father's love that he didn't need to receive glory from others. And so, here's the Father at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, declaring his approval and his delight in his Son as he sends him out to render perfect obedience even to death upon a cross. And in some sense, we could say the voice from heaven here is for Jesus, it's to encourage him, it's to reinforce The Father's delight in Him. Mark and Luke have it addressed to Jesus. It's, you are my son. But here, Matthew, the voice is an announcement. It's for us as well. Because in some sense, the greatest need of our hearts is just this. To hear the voice of God say, you're mine. I love you. Do you know that? I mean, in some sense, that's the greatest need of every heart in the room. Is to hear God's voice say, you're mine. I love you. So I want to finish up this morning by saying... I'm going to say something that I hope sounds completely different and even contrary to what you're used to hearing from guys like me. What we believe around here and what we really kind of is the overarching, really foundational value and belief is that the way Christianity works is to have the love of God within you. And then to have the love of God in you overflowing in love for others. But the issue is our ongoing, continual repentance, right? That's what we said the issue of being faithful as God's people is ongoing, continual, a lifestyle of repentance. But where does the spiritual energy for repentance come from? I mean, the energy for Jesus' obedience came from his confidence in his Father's love and approval. If that was true of him, then don't you think it makes sense that it would be true of us as well? I mean, think about Just think about this with me for a minute. I mean, why is it so hard to be radically generous? Well, who's going to take care of me? I mean, if I, if I really give everything away, then there's not going to be anything left for me, and that just scares me to death, and so I'm completely crippled toward that. I mean, it's fear. It's fear that's rooted in... Um, God God won't... I mean, there's no thought that God says, you know, seek first the kingdom, and, and all these things will be given to you. You have a Father in heaven who knows your needs before you ask. Don't worry. Seek the kingdom. Give everything you have to the poor. We said. Yeah, that's nice, but, right? You see, there's just there's this fear that, that's still there that's rooted in unbelief. But let me, ask, let me ask this. I mean, why is it so hard to speak the truth in love and to confront somebody, you know, over their sin? Why is that so hard? Well, they may not like me after I do that. I mean, nobody, you know, they're going to be mad at me. Well, so? I mean, do you love them? Or do you love you? I mean, you see that? It, I mean, there's this appro- we're after an approval. And anything that might not gain us the approval from others that, that our hearts need, I mean, we're just crippled. We can't do it because we need, we need the approval that we receive from them too much that we can't ever be really loving and help them. But, but think about the other end. You know, so, so on the other side, why do we destroy people with our words? What's going on with that? Why are we unkind? I mean, kids, you're in here. I mean, we deal with this in my family. Why, why are you unkind with the things you say to your brothers and sisters? Why? Because, because your, your heart's looking for something. Your heart needs a validation, it needs an approval, it needs to, to feel loved. And the easiest way for you to feel approval is to make sure you're better than somebody else and to make sure everybody knows it. Right? I mean, do, do you see that? you see the inner workings of the dynamics of all of those things? That what's underneath all of it is this fear that is rooted in unbelief that leads to all kinds of sinful ways of living. And what I want to get behind that and say is that you and I were made in such a way that something outside of us must tell us who we are. You can't validate yourself. Postmodernism is a lie. You can't validate yourself. You need a word from the outside. Everything was created by God's word. And you can't just say to yourself, I know I'm all right. There has to be a word. You have to get affirmation from somewhere else. You don't have the power to make yourself a self. There's no such thing as self-definition or self-construction. If you don't get affirmation from God, you will be deeply, desperately dependent upon other words from outside coming. You'll seek glory from one another. That's what he says in John 5, right? Or you'll have to turn to other gods. You'll make a god out of another person. Out of a relationship and seek to get the affirmation there, or you'll make a God out of belonging to the country club or, you know, something as silly as that and rely on that thing for the verdict to come. Stanley Voke has an article he wrote called The End of the Struggle, and here's how he expresses this. Just listen to this. It's marvelous. He says there is in all of us a struggle to get and keep our own righteousness, and the struggle is as old as Adam and Eve who when charged with sin and Eden at once put the blame on one another, while at the same time, listen to this, they made garments of fig leaves to give themselves some sort of covering from the holy eyes of God. Now listen to the metaphor he picks up on, because this is so great. He says, have you ever watched children build sandcastles on the beach before the incoming tide? Frantically they heap up their walls, patting the soft sand and the solidity and reinforcing it with sticks and stones only to see it washed away at last. So we go round and round to establish our defenses against the waves of other people's criticisms. For some of us, life becomes one long struggle to be what we know all too well we are not. We we're looking to keep, to get and to keep our own righteousness. And so I need to ask you, what are you looking to to bring the verdict? I mean, if you need a verdict to come, what are you looking to to bring the verdict? Is it a relationship? This person tells me that I'm okay, that I'm okay. Is it a status? Is it an SAT score? Is it attending a certain college? You know, what brings the verdict? Because all of those things can be deadly substitutes for God's voice, and they can't, in the end, ultimately provide what your heart needs the most. Here's what you need. You've been made such that the love of God for you in Jesus is just reverberating in your soul, that the Father's delight is, it's just reverberating in there. My, an illustration of this. My wife called me not long ago, and she's, and she's in the car driving. And she says, uh, you have to listen to your daughter. So and Sarah, who's my two-year-old, is in the back of the car, and she's singing over and over and over again the lullaby that I sing her when I put her to bed at night. Beautiful girl, daddy loves you, he loves you. Most beautiful girl in the whole wide world. And Sarah's just back in the car. Beautiful girl. Daddy loves you. I mean, it, it just planted itself in there, right? Um, you know, how many movies have been made about this, about a son or a daughter longing and, and everything that they do looking for their father's approval? I mean, it's everywhere from Stand By Me, which was the classic for my generation, to, you know, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. I mean, go go look at it. It's in there. I mean, this is what we've been made for, to have the love of God just reverberating in our souls and dads. It's your job with your kids, but all of us need it. We need to feel the delight and the affection of our Heavenly Father. We need a verdict to come. Do you know that? But then there's one more question we have to ask. If we need a verdict, if really everything and all of our faithfulness to what Jesus is calling us to be is as people ties back into this verdict coming. If what we desperately need is to, to feel the verdict of God reverberating in our soul, then we have to ask this question, then how does the verdict come? And I want you to see in this passage is why I picked up the verses before. I want you to see the contrast that Matthew is providing for us between Jesus coming and the simplicity of his obedience and fulfilling all righteousness and the voice of God coming and the verdict coming down upon Jesus' life. And up in verse 7, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who come to John's baptism and, and he doesn't permit them to be baptized. You see, the religious leaders of the day, we we learn from other portions of the scripture, we're hoping in their pedigree and their spiritual resume. Jesus will describe some of these people later as, in verse 9 of Luke 18, trusting in themselves that they are righteous. In other words, Putting their confidence in their own spiritual achievements, right? In their own moral performance and thinking they could earn the verdict through um, their their own performance. But John tells them there in verse 7 that their confidence is misplaced. That they too need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That their moral record was not satisfactory. And so there are two options for us. If, we, if, we, if I can convince you that this is really what you need. That this is going to be the determinative factor of your faithfulness and your obedience in God's call upon your life. Two options. The first is, is you can rely on your own good works. You can look to your own spiritual resume. Or number two, you can rely on Jesus to accomplish the work for you. And let me warn you if you put your hope in the first, <clears throat> you will constantly be bouncing back and forth between one of two emotional realities pride and self righteousness or despair and loathing. And that's how you know. That's how you know that you've put your confidence in your own flesh and in your own moral record because your life is one gigantic pendulum swing back and forth between pride, pride on one hand, and despair on the other, self-righteousness on one hand and self-loathing on the other. A good day, you know, a good day will come along and you'll feel pretty good about yourself and the verdict of God will be loud and clear, but then there'll be a bad day and you'll begin to despair and you'll lose the voice of God altogether. And Tim Keller says it's like this, it's like every day, so many of us live like every day we're entering the courtroom of God and there is evidence that's being presented both for you and against you and it's always a toss-up which way it's going to go. So many of us live there, and you'll be constantly living toward the verdict. You'll be striving for it, but never really sure that it's going to come. You won't be able to draw on the love of God within you. and so you might do good works. but any good works you do won't be motivated by love, but by selfishness because you'll be trying to build a spiritual resume. It'll be like it, <laughs> this is, it'll be like dating but never being married. Well, you know, thinking, if I can just do, you know, if I posture myself right, if I say the right thing, you know. I often say in in dating, the way dating goes is, is you're never really the real you because you're not sure if the real you is the right you. And so you go with the you you think the other person wants you to be. I mean, you know, so there's posturing and there's all, you know, there's not really ever any authenticity. But if your hope is in Jesus instead, if your hope is in the gospel If you're looking to Jesus' work on your behalf, then in Jesus the verdict has come. The gavel of God has come down and there's nothing more that needs to be done. And that means you can be absolutely secure. If your faith is in Jesus, then you are counted righteous in him. That's the movement of the gospel. And so Paul says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus John, in his letter to the church, says that, that we can know and rely on God's love. God's love can come and be in us. It can be within us. So like Jesus, we don't need glory from one another because we have the love of the Father in us. And then consider this. That when the verdict of God comes, the Spirit of God descends and rests upon Jesus in this passage and is with Him throughout the rest of His ministry. And remember, remember the Spirit comes to you because if the Spirit descended upon him here, then he can give it to you too. And remember, he has ascended back to the Father. And what the Scriptures teach is that from heaven he has sent the Spirit to be in us. The Spirit comes, but it comes through faith and not through works. That means the Spirit comes as an aid to our weakness. It comes to those who feel their incompetence and inadequacies. It comes to those who are people of continual repentance and confession of sin, not people like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are proud of their spiritual resume. Do you see the the dynamic of the gospel at work here? And so I want to make two applications, and then we're going to come to the Lord's table to get together this morning. The first one is just this. Let's talk about repentance for 30 seconds. So if the issue of being God's people is, is the issue of repentance, if what we're being called to, both by John here, repent for the kingdom comes, Jesus in, in Matthew 4, repent for the kingdom comes, if the issue is our repentance then if you are relying on Jesus for the verdict and not your own works, then here's what this means. Only then will you be a good repenter. I mean, the goal is a lifestyle of ongoing repentance and faith. But unless, hear this, unless you're absolutely sure of the Father's love and approval, you won't be able to admit you're wrong and change. You'll spend all of your energy in the opposite direction trying to prove you're right. But the more you have the love of God in your heart, the more free you will be to admit your sin, to be self-suspicious, to know there are lots of things you're going to be wrong about, lots of ways you're going to sin, and you'll be, and you'll be absolutely free to change, to confess your sin, to look to Jesus to save you, repentance and faith. You see, that's the only way you can be a good repenter. And so if that's the case... Then application number two, then that means we have then we then we have to give ourselves to the spiritual disciplines because listen to this. Jesus' energy for obedience was sourced in his confidence, in his father's love and approval. So here's what you see him doing. If you read if you read the gospels, you'll see that over and over again throughout the course of his ministry, Jesus is constantly going back to reconnect with his father. Right? It's been a bad day. When it's a bad day for me, I overeat and lay on the couch and watch television. Right? Can I get an amen? My, my children are laughing. It's great. Awesome. At least I know I'm on track. If it was a bad day for Jesus, he foregoes he sleep, he goes into the mountains, and he prays. All night long. Because the energy for his obedience is sourced in his relationship with his father. So you constantly see him going off to be with his father. Going off to reconnect with his father. Going back to prayer. Going back to the scriptures. Going back to the spiritual disciplines that bring that connection that he's looking for. And I just want to say delicately to you, but firmly, if Jesus had to do that, guess what? You need to, too. And So the issue is our belief in the gospel. The way you grow to a deeper belief in the gospel is to give yourself to the spiritual disciplines, to the means of grace, to to coming and celebrating the supper with everything that is within you, to coming to the Word and reading the Word and going and seeking God's face there and, and seeking the voice of God coming with the verdict of your life. You're my son. I love you, and you I'm well pleased. See, the reality of the Gospel is just this. What we celebrate at this meal is just this. Jesus' body has been broken and his blood has been shed so that we, too, despite our sin, If we take of his body and his blood, we too can hear, not in a whisper, but in a shout that reverberates in the heavens, God saying over us as his people, you belong to me, I love you, I'm pleased with you. See, that's what we're after. You can't conjure that up. It has to be a move of the Spirit through the means that God has ordained that that comes. That's good news as we come to celebrate this meal together this morning. So let's, let's pray and prepare our hearts for that very thing. Would you do that with me? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we so desperately need to hear from you. Uh, our wayward hearts are sick with sin. And, and um, we have, as the old country song said, looked for love in all the wrong places. When only your voice can heal us, when only your affirmation and delight can satisfy us, we have turned to other gods and sought the the verdict that can come through you alone. Would you forgive us? Uh, Father, help us to be a people who do repent. And in our repentance might we find forgiveness of sins. We turn to Jesus now and we come to this meal that you have uh, provided for us. And we come and we ask that as we come that you would increase our faith in the gospel of Jesus That we would come to know and to rely upon the love that you have for us in him. That your love would be in our hearts. So that we do not need to receive glory from one another. And we might be faithful in the task that you've given us and the obedience you've called us to. Would you come now and work through this meal as we celebrate together and we pray in Jesus' name. If you put your faith in Jesus, he is the only one who never gets tired, never grows weary. Uh, He is the only one who can truly save. And so if your faith is in him, then hear in this benediction the voice of the Father singing over you of his love. No matter what sin or sadness you have come to, you know, come to this place with, no matter what sin or sadness you go from this place toward, know that if your faith is in Jesus Christ, the Father goes with you. And he truly does sing over you and delights in you. So hear his voice in the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.